Well, good morning, church family, and if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, I'm just delighted to get the opportunity to worship with you. My name is Randy, and I'm the lead minister here at the church, and um, the last song that we sang uh, um, really explains the gospel, and this church does not make sense apart from the empty tomb. Uh, we truly believe these lyrics, that we serve a risen king, and that Christianity is not that Jesus, the spirit of Jesus lives on in his teachings and in his principles. No, no. Christianity is that God raised a dead man never to die again. That's Christianity. And that, and that is, and, and our, our hope is built on that. And if Jesus is not bodily risen from the tomb, then we've got better things to do with our time, frankly. The resurrection changes everything. And that's why uh, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, there's nothing in your life that an empty tomb can't fix. Christ has called us to bring the life of heaven right here and now. So, so the point of Christianity is not to get into heaven after you die. It's to, it's to get into heaven before you die. That's what we believe. That's what we mean when we say that we are about a church passionately pursuing Christ. So uh, that's not even my sermon yet. Delays. Delays are God's gracious gifts to tell me that He's in charge. That's a good word. It's a good word for our Montana team and all of our missions teams. And it's a word you'd expect someone like me in a place like this to say. A word that we nod our heads to and acknowledge. Yet it is so hard when it actually happens. I don't care much for delays. I don't like to wait. I don't like to wait on others. I like others to wait on me. <laughs> but if you live life long enough, you will experience delays. If you travel long enough, there will be delays. Be delays taking off. Be delays landing. Uh, if you're doing a construction project, you're going to face delays. And travel delays can be hours and days. Construction projects can be weeks and months. And then there's health issues. And those can go from months to years. Can you imagine putting your life on hold for two years? In your mind, you are at a particular place and time where you would like to be. And yet, because of some health matter... It's now years, and I just said two years. Why two years? Well, two years is where we are in our passage of Scripture today in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 26. You'll find that on page 935 of your church Bibles. The Apostle Paul's life has been on hold for two years. He's been a prisoner 
prisoner of an unjust system. So what happens when your life is put on hold? How do you respond to that? How can we make sense of that? Well, I think these verses help us understand. What I want to do is we're actually going to look at Acts 25 and 26. But for our scripture reading, I want us to consider Acts 26, verses 13 to 29, page 935 of your church Bibles. And I'm going to read those as our, as our verses today and then set the stage for what this is all about. Acts chapter 26, verse 13. The Apostle Paul is giving his faith story, his conversion story, to a king by the name of Agrippa. Verse 13 says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was like a spear. Uh, farm animals would kick against it. You know, the, uh, the farmer, the, the rancher would, uh, would prod that animal along and the animal wouldn't like it. And then finally the animal figured out it would just be better to do what the rancher said. Hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance." For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, now that's the Roman governor, he's a Gentile, he's a Greek. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, 
Would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He was in chains when he said that. Except for these chains. This is God's word. Delays. God's gracious gifts to remind me that he is in charge. At the conclusion of a delay, we read these verses here in Acts chapter 26. What brought us to these verses in Acts 26? Well, well, the book of Acts chronicles the growth of Christianity from around A.D. 30 to about A.D. 62. If I could give a one-verse summary of the book of Acts, it would be Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in which Jesus said to his disciples, But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I want you to see this map that really summarizes the book of Acts in visual form. The book of Acts, chapters 1 through 7, chronicles the growth of Christianity beginning in Jerusalem. And then in Judea and Samaria, Acts chapters 8 through 12. And we see predominantly, not solely, the ministry of Peter in Acts chapters 1 through 12. But beginning in Acts chapters 13 to 28, that's where to the uttermost parts of the earth or the, the ends of the world, and by that Luke means the known world, the Roman Empire world, that's where we see the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And you can see that broadening elliptical circle there as the Apostle Paul in Acts 13 to 28 ventures on three missions trips. And we've been looking through each of these missions trips. Now, in the first mission trip Paul takes, beginning in Acts 13, 3, he goes to the interior of what is now modern-day Turkey, establishing church communities, preaching Christ, facing both reception and resistance. But then he goes back. He goes back to two key churches, Antioch of Syria, the church that sent him, and then he also goes back to Jerusalem to report back on God's progress. In Paul's second mission trip, he stretches out further toward Europe, modern-day Greece, Macedonia, and Achaia, as Paul is establishing spiritual communities, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Athens, Ephesus, and he has other uh, co-workers with him there that you see on that chart. And then always he goes back. He goes back to Jerusalem, and he goes back to Antioch of Syria, uh, reporting back to the brothers and sisters in Christ there that God's work is growing. Jesus is acting. And then on Paul's third mission trip, uh, he basically doesn't begin new works as much as he does going back, strengthening, and establishing the believers there on his third missions trip. Again, he goes back to Jerusalem to report to the church there, 
We are, the God's family is growing. God is being faithful to our father, Abraham, that through you, all nations will be blessed. The people of God comprise a multinational, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-generational, multicultural. The people of God comprise of the nations of the earth. And, and so we have brothers and sisters in Christ Paul says to the Hebrew Christians in Jerusalem. He goes back to encourage them, and then on this third trip, he goes back for another purpose. And Luke doesn't tell us this, but Romans 15, 25 and 26 tell us. 25, 26, and 27. Romans 15, 25 through 27. At present, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and why? bringing aid to the saints. So there's a famine that's going on in Jerusalem. And so these Greek believers in Christ who have never met the Hebrew believers in Christ, they're trusting the Apostle Paul with a rather large offering. They give it to Paul, and Paul brings it back to Jerusalem for Macedonia and Achaia. That's the Greek. That's that's Greece, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So God's church is unified as brothers and sisters in Greece who have never met brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are sending help by way of a financial offering for the assistance of the poor. And Paul and his team, they're serving as the couriers of that love offering. And so Paul goes back to Jerusalem, and he goes back, and he's worshiping there, and Paul's enemies in Asia that had resisted the gospel when he was there, they happened to be in Jerusalem. They spotted him at the temple, and they just flipped. And a riot ensued. Paul was arrested. He was nearly flogged. He was tried before the Sanhedrin, the same group that tried Jesus. And they couldn't figure out what to charge him with. They were in disagreement. Rome got involved. The Roman governor, Felix, got involved. And Paul was transported to Caesarea. And Felix kept wanting Paul to bribe him with some of that offering money. So he kept asking Paul, kept conversing with Paul, and Paul only gave him the gospel for over two years. And Felix was just this torn person because, I mean, Paul's not going to give him any money. That's the end of the story. But Felix keeps coming back, and he procrastinates on a decision for Christ, and he wastes the most precious commodity a human being can have, and that's time. And Acts chapter 24, verse 27 says, Two years later, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So now there's Festus, who is a novice, and he comes to this Judean province. This was the same province that was governed by Pontius Pilate, Festus comes and he wants to make nice with the influencers in Judea. So he goes to Jerusalem. He's talking to the high priests and they do not let up. They say, we want this person in custody who is Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Bring him down to Jerusalem so that we can finish our trial with him. 
They don't want to finish the trial with him. They want to assassinate him on the way to Jerusalem. They've always wanted that. Festus says, well, no, he's a Roman citizen. Uh, He's in my jurisdiction. He's in my court. If you want to try him, come on up to my courtroom and we'll have the trial there. And so they do. They bring uh, themselves up to Caesarea. Festus sits on his tribunal seat, 25, verse 6. Festus went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal. That's the official chair, the judge's bench. He ordered that Paul to be brought, and Paul stood there. There was Festus and all of Paul's enemies. And Luke pictures like a pack of wolves surrounding Paul, pointing at him, accusing him. He's desecrated the temple. He started a riot. He's against, he's just a past. And Paul stands there calmly. In verse 8, he argues his defense. It's the same thing he said two years before. His story has not changed. I've not violated any of Moses' law. I have not uh, caused a riot against Caesar. And by the way, where are your witnesses? They have none. It's hearsay. If Festus were worth his weight as a judge, he would have thrown the case immediately out. But he's a crafty politician. And verse 9 says, wishing to do the Jews a favor, he said to Paul, look, Paul, let's call a time out here. I mean, you're Jewish, they're Jewish, Jerusalem's Jewish, I'm Greek. Uh, Why don't you file a motion for a change of venue on down to Jerusalem? And you can have that settled there. Wouldn't you like to do that? And Paul is going, do I look stupid? they've wanted to assassinate me for the last two years. They still want to assassinate me. Uh, No, I don't. And right then, Paul realizes that he's not going to get a a fair shake from Festus. Paul says in verse 10, I'm standing standing before Caesar's tribunal. You are a representative of the emperor of Rome. And I, this is where I ought to be tried. They've already tried me. They can't figure out what to charge me with. They don't know what to charge me with. That's why they sent me to you. And they know that I've not done any wrong. If I have harmed the emperor, if I have done any capital crime, then put me to death. But it is illegal for you to turn a Roman citizen over into their custody. And then Paul says one word, that changes his future for the next two years. The next two years. Now, this is where I'm going to need your help. Because um, after I say this word, I need you to gasp. All right? Can we just practice that on three? One, two, three. (gasps) Thank you. All right. You say, what is this word, Pastor? Well, just here it is. Paul says, if there's nothing to their charges against me, No one can give me up to them. Provocatio. Yeah, that was good. Good. Let's do that one more time. I like that. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. Provocatio. Oh, yeah. Provocatio. What does that mean? It means what it says. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. 
You say, what's that? Since the founding of the Roman Republic, and at the time of this writing, it was 550 years, a citizen of the Republic, and then also a citizen of the empire, a citizen could, at any stage in a trial, it didn't have, you didn't have to wait till, till conviction or acquittal, but at any stage of the trial, a citizen could appeal their case to the emperor who would try the case himself. And you may be thinking, well, that sounds like an awfully long line to have to wait in, delay. And, well, yes, that's true. Uh, but but it, it offers protections for citizens for situations just like this. On the other hand, though, <laughs> any citizen who appealed to the emperor who would hear the case himself, they had to finance their own way to get to Rome. They had to pay for their travel. They had to pay for their boarding. They had to pay, they had to pay for everything because the, the government wasn't going to. So if you can get here, and if you can wait, and if you can survive the delay, we'll hear your case. And, and it's an all or nothing. All right? You're either acquitted or you're put to death. And Paul realizes he's not going to get a fair shake. So he appeals to Caesar. And at that point, provocatio. <gasps> Festus. In fact, it's just really interesting. Festus is like, an, he's a novice. It says he, when he had conferred with his own counsel, as if to say, can he do this? Yeah, he can do this. <laughs> okay, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So, Paul's going to be on his way to Rome. Festus is kind of relieved, because now he can clear Paul off his docket. He doesn't have to worry about Paul anymore. But then secondly, uh, Festus doesn't have to worry about pleasing Paul's enemies, because he can now say, well, he's a Roman citizen, he exercised his right, my hands are tied, I can't do anything for you, okay? So he's kind of relieved that Paul is going to Rome. But then that night, in his office, as he's beginning to fill out the paperwork, oh, he's going to Rome. What, am, what are his charges? I, I don't know what to charge him with. Now, those of you who may be interested in law school, I'd like to teach you law school now. Because I'm a pastor, I do these things. Um, <clears throat> law School 101. Whenever you're standing before a judge, you have to ask the judge to do something. That's what, why else would you be before the judge? You're there to ask the judge for something. And Festus doesn't know what he wants the judge to do. Now, this is embarrassing enough if it happens to be a judge, say, in Champaign County. But this is the emperor of Rome. It's a career killer. Festus is, he's just befuddled as to what, he, what he's going to do. And so, I don't know how to fill in this box. That's why he confers with King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. He tells... Uh, in chapter 25, 13 to 27, Festus 
tells Agrippa about his dilemma. You know, he says, I'm at a loss, verse 20, as to how to investigate these questions. And uh, uh, verse 26, I have nothing definite to write my Lord about him. And so I, I just need some help because you're the king of Judea and you're Hebrew and you're supposed to be the expert on these matters. And so I just need some help. And so Agrippa says, well, I'll meet, I'll meet him. And so in this large hall are gathered dignitaries, military tribunes, uh, uh, Agrippa, Bernus, Festus. I mean, it's a who's who of the Judean province that's gathered. And Agrippa is there to hear the Apostle Paul. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Agrippa, just so you know. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who tried to kill the baby Jesus. His grandfather was Herod Antipas, who did kill John the Baptist. His father was Herod Agrippa I, who killed the Apostle James. And now that's Herod Agrippa II of Acts chapters 25 and 26. Doesn't look too good for the Apostle Paul, does it? And then there's Bernice. Well, who's she? Well, uh, that is his sister. Uh, who, and I just report the news, is also rumored to have been his lover. So they were in kind of an incestuous, uh, really uh, perverted relationship. And, uh, and Bernice then later had an affair with the general Titus, not Titus of the letter to Titus, no, no, no. This, uh, the general Titus, who leveled Jerusalem in AD 70, and then Titus, this general later became the emperor, and he broke the affair off with Bernus when he became the emperor because the aristocratic Romans frowned upon their emperor having an affair with Jewish women. So, this is who Paul has to work with. Which, can I just say something here, church family? You know, I wish that our government leaders at all levels had the heart and character of Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. <laughs> I just do. You know, I just do. And it's so disappointing when they don't. All right? It is. But if I feel like I have to wait until they do have the heart and character of Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood before I can fulfill my responsibilities as an ambassador for Christ, then I'm putting my hope in the wrong person. Because our hope is not in any earthly king. Our hope is in the resurrected king. And we need to remember that, not just in this room, but in every room of every house, in every conversation that we have. Amen? Amen? So there's this big event that takes place. And the who's who of Judea are gathered in this one hall. And at the appropriate time, the Apostle Paul is brought out. I mean, this guy, this, this dignitaries and royalty and pomp all brought out to 
King and Bernus and Festus. And, and then there's this, the apostle. This Paul in chains. And he waves his hand. 26, 1. He stretches out his hand, not to silence the crowd. This stretch, this is a courtesy. This is a thank you for giving me the opportunity. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate. That is, before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today. And Paul begins, for the third time now, to tell the story of his conversion. And it's the story of a Pharisee who became a persecutor, who became an apostle. And Paul says, I totally understand why my enemies are filled with rage and hatred. I used to be one of them. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I punished them often in the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And then Paul tells of the day he turned to Christ, and Jesus himself appeared. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And from that day on, Paul surrendered and he was all in. As the prophet Ezekiel was commissioned and the Lord said, Rise and stand and speak. So Jesus said these words to me. Rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you. I have appointed you. You are my apostle. You are to declare by grace through faith, the forgiveness of sins and that those who come to me have a place. So God's will is not just that, that you know, he forgives our sins and now go on and get out of my hair. No, no, no. You have a place. You have a place. I want you home. I want you with me. You're not an enemy through Christ. You're an heir. And, and Jesus said, I've, I've, I've appointed you to open the eyes of those who are in darkness. And people who are spiritually blind don't know that the darkness is strange. They've got to open their eyes. That way they can see the light. And, and Paul says in verse 19, I've not been disobedient to this. My life has been given to this, to him. And that's why they're trying to kill me. Because of the resurrection of the dead. But this is the Hebrew scriptures that have been fulfilled. That the Christ, verse 23, must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And right then, Festus, who'd been listening to all this, he just interrupted. And, and, and he said, oh, Paul, you're You're nuts. You're just nuts. Your you're, you're great education has just driven you nuts. And Paul says, I am not nuts. I'm not out of my mind. I am not insane. He says, I am speaking, verse 25, true and rational words. And then he turns to the king. He looks at King Agrippa. He says, the king knows about these things. And, and, and to him, 
I speak boldly. None of these things, none of these things has escaped his notice. This has not been done in a corner. This was, this is, what happened to Jesus concerning his death, burial, and resurrection is not some mystical, hidden news. This is his public news. It happened. Everyone knew in Jerusalem. And then, and then Paul does something, and I'm going to need you to gasp again, and I'll tell you when. Because he addresses the king. He says, he, he said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Why did they do that? Because, he, because the prisoner addressed the king. <gasps> What's the king going to say? Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe the prophets. What is he going to say? What is he going to say? No, I'm the king of Judea. No, I don't believe the prophets. No, he's not going to say that. But Agrippa's shrewd. He says, are you trying to turn me into a Christian? In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, no, not just you. All of you. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And when Paul said that, Agrippa stood up, and Bernice stood up, and Festus stood up, and they just left. <laughs> That's it. They just left. And just before they exited those doors over there, Agrippa leaned over to Fest and said, well, you know, you could have released him had he not appealed to Caesar. Lights out. What was that about? You know what that was about? That was about a divine appointment dressed as an earthly delay. And that's, our, that's it. That's what I want you to get here. Divine appointments are often dressed as earthly delays. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Listen, the greatest opportunities for Christ to come, uh, the greatest opportunities for Christ come in the form of failure or some frustrating situation where we feel limited. And out of that limitation, out of that frustration, out of that delay, out of that weakness, we stand and speak a timely word for Christ. And at the end of Acts chapter 26, we see that Christ himself has been orchestrating an event where his ambassador would speak his word on his behalf to a people that Paul could never have gathered on his own. Jesus, Jesus is fulfilling his promise that he said about Paul in Acts 9, 16. Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Divine appointments are often dressed as earthly delays. Does your life... Lack. 
the typical indicators of success and significance? Well, consider Paul. Especially if you feel like you've been taken out of the action or your life is on hold or you're stuck or you just can't gain traction and it's now been two years. Two years Paul's been in prison. Two years he's been, he's, he's been kept from traveling and encouraging these churches that need leadership for two years. Seemingly wasted because of self-centered, greedy, gutless men. Yet from that frustration and that delay and that limitation, Christ created an event that Paul could not have put together. Who would have thought that being falsely accused, beaten, arrested, and then wrongly detained would have been the means to gaining such an audience? The fact of the matter is, God's playground is in seemingly impossible situations. And someone might say, yeah, but to what end? Paul didn't convert anyone. That's not Paul's job. It's not the job of the witness taking the stand to convert the jury. That's the attorney's job. Well, who's the attorney? Jesus. Who's the other attorney? The Holy Spirit. Well, who's Paul then? He's the witness. What's his job? To speak, remember, true and rational words. True and rational words. And that's the gospel. Here's who Jesus is. Here is what he's done. And here's what he's done in my life. Now decide. And you know what? Listen, when you can make peace with that identity, that primary identity as an ambassador, a representative for Christ, then you can stand with humble confidence and say, as Paul said, I wish that all were to become like me. Listen, listen. We have to be able to say that. Humbly, but in a straightforward way. By the help of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, we as a congregation need to be able to say to our community, we, we, we would like for you to become as we are, except for these chains. Because what we have is, what we have is, is Jesus. And that's all we have to give to our community. So our lives should not make sense apart from the resurrection. And, and what, well, what a blessing that would be to our community that, that we could say, whatever you see in us, whatever you hear in us that looks like Christ, then imitate that. And when we walk through disappointment and death and delay and hardship with poise and grace, not on our own strength, but only by the strength of God's Holy Spirit indwelling us as His temple, as His people. Listen, if Christ is risen, what can man do to us? And the fact of the matter is, Paul doesn't want his enemies to go away. He wants his enemies to become part of the family. He wants his enemies in the pew. He wants them singing what we just sang. Divine appointments are often dressed as earthly delays. And, and, and the path through these 
delays and disappointments. The path is not by resenting the disappointments, but by accepting their place in the scheme of God's purposes who does not have to explain himself to us. So Paul is on his way to Rome on a ship that will have a massive wreck. But that's next week. (laughs) I hope you come back. One more thing. And then I'm going to pray. I wanted to tell you about Larry Hoffman. Who's Larry Hoffman? That's why I wanted to tell you about him. Larry Hoffman from Wisconsin went to a Goodwill store. He needed a shirt. He wanted a bargain. So he goes to the store. He picks out a shirt, uh, paid for it, didn't try it on because it looked like it would fit. He went home. At home, when he tried it on, it was just too small for him. And that kind of made him mad. So he throws it on the bed. And at that point, he looks at the pocket in the shirt. He saw something in the pocket. He stuck his hand in the pocket, and he pulled out $2,000. Yeah, $2,100 bills. True story. Look it up. Larry Hoffman, Wisconsin, Goodwill store, $2,000. That should be enough on the Google thing. Go ahead. Larry, because he has a conscience, Immediately calls the Goodwill store. He wants to know who the owner of the shirt was. (laughs) It's a store of clothes. We have no idea. Then he calls the police. He brings the money over to the police. They say, well, we can hold it for 90 days. And if nobody claims it, it's yours. 90 days later, it became Larry's. And because he has a heart, he shared it. I wanted you to know that. And here's why. Your circumstance, your situation, our circumstances from God are a lot like that shirt. And God's purpose in giving us the shirt of difficulty, the shirt of pain, the shirt of delay, is not that it fits. It's what's in the pocket. And that shirt God sends may not be anything like what we want on a human level. It may not fit into our plans, match our needs, or suit our preferences. And we may see it as a mistake or a waste, but God intends it as a far greater kingdom blessing. Listen to me, church family. God always puts something in the pocket of the shirt. Forget about whether it fits.